so we're in the middle of a series called Fasting and Feasting. Uh, and what we're doing with this series is we're sort of trying to uncover what it is that we long for most. What is it um, that we long for God to satisfy in us, uh, for God to satisfy some sort of hunger or emptiness in us? Now, all throughout Scripture, God sort of uses food or the lack thereof to sort of talk to us spiritually about what's happening inside of us, about the hungers that are spiritually happening inside of us. And God shows up again and again, and he sort of meets uh, our emptiness. He meets our hunger for him. And one of the reasons we're talking about that, like at this point in time, is because we're in the middle of what our church calendar calls Lent. Now, if you grew up in um, a church tradition that didn't celebrate Lent, or you didn't grow up in church at all, that's totally fine. Um, Lent is actually, I'll just explain it real quickly, Lent is this 40-day period before Easter that you sort of, uh, that, that you take preparation for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, uh, Lent doesn't show up. The word Lent doesn't show up anywhere in the Bible. It's sort of like the early church was the ones who said, hey, let's have this time where we engage in spiritual discipline and spiritual practice in order to strengthen our spiritual muscles. And the way that we're going to practice that is through prayer and fasting. And we're going to use this as an opportunity to sort of get ready and get strong in preparation to celebrate Christ's resurrection. Now, I invited our congregation to sort of uh, choose something that you would sort of fast from during this season. And if you haven't done that, that's okay. I'd invite you to practice for the next two weeks. We have two more weeks between now and Easter, and it's a great time to just practice something. And um, some of you are choosing to fast from uh, one meal a week or a particular food item. Some of you are fasting from a particular type of technology. Um, some of you are fasting uh, from staying up late or sleeping in or or something like that. Whatever it is that the Spirit has led you to do, um, that's wonderful. And it's actually a way for God to sort of help you practice. It's sort of like the, the analogy we used last week was it was sort of like boot camp. It was military boot camp to get you ready in this desert of your choosing for the deserts that you don't get to choose. So that you know how to turn to God to satisfy your longings during those periods where you're just practicing, where you're just in boot camp. So that when you're actually in a spiritual battle, you know what it looks like to turn to God, to engage in truth. And so uh, I hope that's going well for you. I know that for me, I've shared this before the past couple weeks, uh, my Lenten fast has been a struggle and I am continuing to struggle, but God is meeting me in those places and teaching me as I continue to surrender to him. And I hope that that's been a part of your journey as well. Not perfection, not total success, but, but maybe actually the best version of your Lenten fast is, is a word of struggle. And that's Okay. And I invite you to continue to seek God's presence and continue to walk on. Now, those of you who know me well know that I moved here from Phoenix. Uh, me and my husband and our two daughters uh, used to live in Phoenix. We lived there for seven years. I was a pastor of church there. And one of my favorite things about Phoenix that I really, really miss, there's some things that I don't miss. Like, I don't miss that they didn't have seasons. It was just, like, warm and warmer. Um, but what I do miss is that the warm and warmer climate allowed for there to be a lot of fruit trees everywhere. Everywhere. And so, uh, and I was taken back by this, uh, around November, what starts to happen is uh, huge bushels of lemons and oranges. 
show up everywhere. And people are just like, take them. Like, please take them. Because what happens is if you don't pick them, then you get what um, Phoenicians call roof rats, which are really just a fancy word for rats. Like, they get all in your yard, and then they get in your roof because you've, like, sort of given them this plentiful feast of all this citrus fruit. So you have to pick the fruit, but then nobody knows what to do with it because they're like, what am I going to do with this many oranges? What am I going to do with this many lemons? And so when we lived in Phoenix, it was always my favorite. Around November is when that fruit is ready to pick and when these bushels of, of, of citrus fruit show up. And so I learned how to make lemon curd and lemon meringue, and we learned to freeze the lemons, and we learned to, like, we just had a lemon-juicing party, and we would zest them, and it was really obsessive. The oranges were more desired, so they were harder to get, but I could get my hands on some good lemons. But there was another tree that was less popular, and the squirrels didn't, or the roof rats, didn't go after as much, so nobody really cared to pick them. The other tree that was in abundance there was olive trees, olive trees. There was a neighbor across the street from where we lived that had an olive tree in her front yard. And so I was very curious about olives and I decided I wanted to ask her if I could pick the olives from her olive tree. And she was like, yeah, because I'm not doing anything with them. And I was like, perfect. So I was out there one time, and my mom happened to be visiting. So us together, we picked about like two five-gallon buckets filled with olives. And then I Google, YouTube's your best friend, and I'm like, how do I, what do I do with these? Like, what do I do with these? Because I made the mistake of just putting one right in my mouth, and like, you can't do that. Like, you cannot take an olive fresh from the tree and just put it in your mouth. It's bitter and it's gross. Like, and if you're like, I don't like olives anyways, wait till this story, this story gets better, right? Okay, so bitter and gross, you have to do something with it. So I'm like, well, how do you make olives from the tree into olives that you can eat? And I read it said something about a brine. Now, it didn't give me, well, it gave me more details than, I'm not a detail-oriented person. So I just said, I know how to brine things. This is like salt water. So I found these big Rubbermaid tubs, and I dumped the olives in these Rubbermaid tubs, and then I dumped a ton of salt on them, and then I dumped some water in it, and it sat and it sat, and every couple days I would look and I would see, are my olives ready? Are they ready to be eaten? And slowly over time, um, I kept looking and what seemed to be happening was that my olives never turned into an olive you would want to eat. Instead, they just turned into a big, moldy mess in my garage. And I was heartbroken because I had wasted all of these olives. Until my husband reminded me, Beth, you don't even like olives. <laughs> and I was like, I know, but it was filled with possibility. Like, I, and then I thought, oh, what I should have done was make olive oil, because what I do use a lot of is olive oil. So then began the next research project of trying to figure out how to turn my next batch of picked olives into olive oil. And this is what I learned. I learned that the way that you make olive oil today is really the very same way that you do it. You did it in the ancient world. You would lay out a huge net on the, at the base of the tree, and then you would beat the olive tree. 
until all of the olives fell down. Now, when me and my mom were doing it, we were like picking, picking, picking. You don't do it that way. You just like, you take a rake and you just beat the olive tree until all of the olives shake down onto the net that is laid beneath the ground. Now, today they have like some electric shakers that like, you know, are a little more efficient, but generally it's the same process. You rake and you beat the olive tree until all of those olives fall onto the ground and then you take the net and you gather them all up and you take them to a press. And the olives get entered into this press. Back in the ancient time, it was a, a millstone that was, um, that was turned by an animal. Uh, today, it's an electric press. But they just press it and they grind it and all of those island, all of those olives olives get broken and mashed up until the oil that is inside of the olives is released and then it's washed over and you know what happens when water is added to oil it separates right so the water washes away whatever remaining particles are there and the oil then goes to it uh, separates from the water and then they're able to get the oil the oil is then used for food and lamps and soap, and healing. Now, I don't know if you know this, but olive oil has like an anti-aging property. Um, there's a whole thing about a Mediterranean diet, that people that have a Mediterranean diet, that their diet is rich in olive oil, that they um, are preserved, right? It, anti, it anti-ages you, not just from the outside, but also from the inside out. It has this anti-inflammatory property similar to ibuprofen. And so there's a lot of people, particularly in the Mediterranean world, that use olive oil as a moisturizer. They'll put it on their hand. They'll use it, in the ancient world, they used it as, as a healing method. They would put it on wounds in order to create healing. Now these olive trees in the ancient world, even today, were widely planted and very common in the Mediterranean world. They were extremely valuable as well. And if you had a large grove of olive trees, that was the sign of prosperity. Now today in the Middle East, um, and even in the ancient world, really, like olive trees were actually given as an inheritance. Like if a father had three olive trees and three children, each child would get one of the olive trees. So a lot of times when you go to olive groves, it's not one person that owns the whole grove. It's like this person owns these three trees, and this person owns these two trees, and these over here are owned by this other person, right? So they're divided up because they've been split as an inheritance because olive trees last and can live and continue to produce for a thousand years. A thousand years. Now, I didn't just bring you here to talk about olives. I have a point. But what I want you to do in your little circle group is I actually want you to take one of those pieces of paper and I just want you to brainstorm for a second about all of the ways that olive trees or olive oil show up in Scripture. All right? Now, if you're like, I do not know Scripture well, that's okay. Just think of, do the best you can, or rely on the person next to you. And at this point, if you're like, but I'm in a sitting by myself, you should have sat with somebody else. I told you. You can still join. That's fine. But just brainstorm. All of the ways olive trees, olives, or olive oil show up in the biblical narrative. Ready? Oh, and make sure you know each other. Go.
All right, you got mm, 30 more seconds. I don't want you to have too much of an exhaustive list. Okay, good. <laughs> Keep going then. <laughs> All right, whatever you've got. That's what you've got. And however well you did or didn't do, that's fine. No judgment. This isn't about like, we're not in a Bible bowl. Nobody's getting first place for the most whatever. All right? This is just a brainstorm. All right. Go ahead and raise your hand. Who got Noah? Does anybody get Noah? All right, good, right? So Noah, right, he's on the ark. He sends out a bird, and the bird brings back an olive branch, right? It's a symbol of peace and comfort, that there is hope, right? Raise your hand if you got the prophet Elijah, where the oil, the oil jar kept being filled. Good, we got one over here. Oh, good, you got that one. Good, good, good. All right, raise your hand if you got David, King David being anointed with oil. Excellent. Right? The oil is poured on King David to say that he is the next king, that he is the holy one, right? Uh, sheep were also anointed. Great. Uh, let's see. Who got Esther? That Esther used oil as her beauty regiment, that all of the candidates in the beauty... Nobody, nobody, okay. So all of the candidates uh, to take the place of Queen Vashti were given a year's beauty treatment of oil, just rubbed, I just think, pimples. Like, I don't know, but they just lathered themselves in oil, made them beautiful, right? Uh, how many of you got the Good Samaritan? The Good Samaritan, actually, when he finds uh, the beaten man, uh, he disinfects his wounds with wine, and then he bandages him with oil. Okay, there's some others that you guys got. Uh, raise your hand if you got another one. Yeah. Yes. Throughout Scripture, that that is still the practice today in terms of how olive trees are grown, and it talks about that in Scripture. In fact, in the book um, of uh, Isaiah, it talks about Jesus being the branch that grows from the cut-down, burned-down stump. And a lot of people are like, that was an olive tree, even though it doesn't specifically said. Scholars believe, yeah, that was an olive tree. They're referring to that idea that Christ would be the one who comes and is the branch um, that restores Israel. Any others? Yeah. Good, the Mount of Olives. Great, we're going to talk more about that. The Garden of Gethsemane, yeah. Another one? Mount of Olives? Okay, perfect. Good, good. There's oil that's poured on Jesus' feet. Excellent. And the others, great. Okay, good. That's great. You guys did a phenomenal job. We're going to jump into the story about Jesus in the Mount of Olives, right? The Garden of Gethsemane. 
It's found in Matthew 26. If you want to follow along, you can turn to Matthew 26, whether you use the Bible that's present for you, a Bible you brought, or you can open your app to Matthew 26. We're just going to be reading in verse 36 about the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is also called the Mount of Olives. Um, this story takes place in the, like the night before Jesus is crucified, right? He has the last supper with his disciples, the Passover supper. And then we're told in verse 36 that after the dinner was over, it says that then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Now, Jesus could have gone anywhere. He knows that he's going to die. He's looking for a place of comfort. And he could have gone anywhere. Could have gone to Martha and Mary's house. He could have gone uh, for a walk on the water, but instead he chooses to go to a place that actually means olive press. Gethsemane means olive press. And he goes there to pray. And then Matthew continues, he says this. He says, and then Jesus said to them, sit here, his disciples. Hey, listen, disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and then he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Then going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knows that what is coming next is that he is going to die on a cross. And that this is necessary for him to fulfill this whole um, process of bringing healing and life to the world. To redeem all of God's people and bring them into the presence of God so that they can be reunited again. Now the interesting thing about this is that it is not lost on Matthew. That the anointed one, the one who is in the kingly line of David, who was anointed with oil, and who was prophesied to be the great, 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 great grandfather of the Messiah. It's not lost on Matthew that the anointed one would spend his last night among olive trees, wrestling with his heavenly father about his mission and his destiny. In the middle of this moment, like Jesus begs for another way. Like he's looking towards the cross and he sees the raw brutality and the challenge and the physical agony that he's going to experience. And he's wrestling and he's anxious. And this anxiety crushes his body from the inside out. In Luke's account of this moment where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Luke describes as a physician, Luke describes this condition as hemoditris. It, it, it's this condition that says when somebody is under so much anguish, they actually begin to sweat blood. That blood begins to come from the pores of their forehead and their fingernails and their tear ducts. And this is how much anguish Jesus is under. And this process actually would have made Jesus's skin even more frail and more vulnerable. 
And what Matthew continues to say is that then Jesus, he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping, right? He said, come, wait with me and pray. And instead his disciples fell asleep. And Jesus says, like, couldn't you men keep watch for me for just an hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray, he instructs them again. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing. He's talking about himself. Like, I am willing to die for my people. I'm willing to walk to the cross. I'm willing to become vulnerable. But my flesh, my flesh is weak. And so Jesus went away for a second time and he prayed and he begs his father, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your, but may your will be done. And what Jesus is essentially saying in this moment is he's pleading with his heavenly father, like, look, I ultimately want what you want. I want redemption and healing to fall to the whole world. But if there's any other way that this can happen, like, like can we get to that? <laughs> like, can we do this a different way? And Jesus' pleas are met with silence, and surrender. It's really important to understand that before Jesus ever bleeds from the cross, he bleeds in the garden. And there's an interesting comparison that's made here that has always been lost on me until this moment. That just as an olive must writhe, must be wrestled, and must be pressed to yield oil, so must the Savior writhe and wrestle and be pressed until flows from him the most inexhaustible supply of grace and anointing and healing. Like, think about it this way. Because the anointed one was crushed and bruised, from him flows an inexhaustible supply of grace and anointing and healing. Like unless there's that, that crushing and that bruising, the olive just tastes bitter. Nothing can be done with it. But it's under that crushing, under that pressing, under that mashing that this oil flows from him. And I think that Matthew is making a comparison here, right? He's putting Jesus, the anointed one, in a grove of olives. And he's saying, listen, because of Jesus, the oil of healing is being poured out to you and to me. So what I want you to do is on your table, each of you have a little piece of paper. And one of you may have to use the back of the brainstorm paper, and that's okay. Um, I just want you to take a moment, and just to yourself, you're not going to share this list with everybody else. Take a moment and ask God to reveal any areas in your life that need healing. What are the areas that, that you need healing for? And I just want you to write down the names or the places or the memories or the regrettables that sort of just come to mind. Okay, so just in the quiet of this moment, again, you're not sharing this list with everybody else, so you can be vulnerable on this list. All right, go ahead and take a second to just think about that. Allow God to just bring those things to mind. And we're just going to have this moment be a moment of silence and reflection for you and God.
right. When Jesus submitted himself to death on a cross, when he submitted himself to his father and he said, listen, not my will, but yours be done, when Jesus was crushed and when Jesus was pressed, what flowed from him was an oil of healing. Now, I know that it's really hard to imagine that what happened 2,000 years ago actually can affect healing now. But the things that you have written on your piece of paper, God desires to heal you in those spaces. God desires to bring his anointing oil and like pour it on you and lavish it on you and bring healing in those spaces. That's actually why Jesus died. It wasn't just a symbol. It, it wasn't just something that happened way back then but has no effect now. It's something that is real. It's a hope and a, that's offered to each and every one of us. Now, I know it's hard to imagine that because I know that there are spaces that we have been wounded and, and have been struggling with for years. And, and perhaps we've gone to God before and we've said, listen, heal this thing, heal this thing, heal this thing. Please, 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 please. And we've not experienced a response. And I don't know why God sometimes shows up in some ways and he says, yes, healed, done, miraculously, supernatural in that moment. And why it is that sometimes God says, listen, we're going to walk this out as a process. We're going to heal it, but we're going we're gonna to do something with it. I don't know why he chooses the things that he does. But what I do know is that what we celebrate on Easter is resurrection. What we celebrate on Easter is that dead things don't stay dead that open wounds don't stay open. What we celebrate on Easter is that healing comes. Sometimes right now, and sometimes on the other side in heaven. And so one of the things that Jesus teaches us to do is he actually teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. And what that phrase means is like actually like, hey, we recognize that in heaven there's going to be healing, that you're going to bring healing for this entire list of things, like all of it healed. And God <laughs> on earth in Clarksburg, in Germantown, in Gaithersburg, in Silver Spring, as it is in heaven right? That's what this whole thing is about. That's what this whole thing is, that Jesus was crushed so that the anointing oil of healing can flow to all of us, and it will, and we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Jesus actually teaches us, um, when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, right? I briefly recapped that before, right? The Good Samaritan goes, he finds the parable is that this Good Samaritan finds this beaten neighbor, and he takes the beaten man, and he uh, disinfects his wounds with wine, and, and he wraps them in bandages, heals them with oil, anoints them with oil so that they might heal properly. Jesus finishes this parable, and then he turns to everyone listening, and he says, go and do likewise. 
Like, when you encounter somebody who is beaten and broken and in need of healing, anoint them with oil. Help them find their healing. And this practice of, like, going out and anointing others with oil is sort of a practice that is rooted all throughout Scripture. It's this act of compassion and love and, and, and healing. And in the book of James, James is the brother of Jesus, right? He writes this letter, and in the book of James, James instructs the churches and the followers of Jesus to do this. He says this in chapter 5. He says, is anyone sick among you? Is anyone broken? Is anyone hurting? Is anybody in need of healing? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Right? This is what we're called to do. We're not called to just suffer in silence in our own brokenness. We're called like, hey, I'm broken and I'm hurt and I'm sick. Like, church, will you like anoint me with oil? Will you bring healing? Will you pray for me? Now, this act heals. Right? This act of anointing somebody with oil and praying for them heals. Sometimes it heals in a supernatural way where God just decides in that moment, in his infinite power and in his wisdom, he decides healing is going to be happen and you're going to experience on earth as it will one day be in heaven, right in the now. But that doesn't always happen that way, but this act still brings healing. It is the act of coming around each other and anointing one another that is healing in and of itself because of the vulnerability of it, right? It allows somebody to enter into our space, to physically touch us and remind us that we are not alone. And there is healing even in that. So what I want to do is I actually want to spend the remainder of our time together to practice this with one another. What I'm going to invite you to do is I'm going to invite you to share just one of the things, one of the areas of your life where you are hungry to experience healing with those in the group. Now, I'm not asking you to share, like, the most vulnerable thing that you put on that list. In fact, if that entire list is vulnerable, pick something else. Like, I want you to share something that's appropriate for the group that you are in the middle of. Some of you, I can see, are sitting with very close friends or family members. And with them, you might be willing to say, yeah, here's, the most here's my vulnerable thing. Others of you are like, I don't even know these people. Like, I met them today. In which case, you're going to share something that is less personal. You're going to share something that is appropriate for that moment. This is not about us, like, vomiting all of our stuff in front of people we don't know. We're not trying to force intimacy. We're trying to do it at an appropriate level where it allows us to practice being the body of Christ. And so what I'm going to invite you to do is, is one person, you're going to take turns and one person's going to share like, hey, this is an area of my life where I need healing. And then another person in the group, and, and you can just you can decide who that is, however you would like. It could be spontaneous, or you could assign somebody to do it. Hey, the person to the left, or whatever. There is a, a bowl or a little plate of olive oil on the table. And another person who's not sharing is going to dip their finger in the olive oil, and you're going to put the olive oil, place the olive oil on the person's forehead or their hand. 
as a, as a mark of anointing them. You're going to place the olive oil on their forehead or their hand. And this is a symbol of Christ's presence in suffering as the anointed one. And then you're going to pray a blessing over them. Now, you can use your own words to pray for them. You can absolutely use your own words. If you're like, I don't know what to say, I'm going to have a prayer up here for you. And you can just repeat these these words. You can, as you dip the olive oil in and you put it on their hand or on their forehead, you're going to repeat these words. You're going to say, blessed are you. Let me get that prayer up. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe who pours out your lavish grace, compassion, and love on us. Oh, it's on two slides. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Uh, Heal them, O Lord, and they shall be healed. Save them, and they shall be saved. For you are the anointed one. Amen. Let's just leave this slide up. This will be the prayer, just this, okay? So you're going to dip your finger in, you're going to anoint them, you're going to say, heal them, O Lord, and they shall be healed. Save them, and they shall be saved. For you are the anointed one. Amen. And then you're just going to take turns. Each person in the group is going to share something there, are in need of healing for, and then someone else in the group is going to anoint them with the oil. And you can say your own prayer, or you can say this one. And you're going to repeat it till everyone has received prayer. I know that this can be a very vulnerable thing, and this can feel a little uncomfortable for people. But why we gather is so we can practice and be strengthened as the body of Christ so that as we are sent out of this place to live as the people of Christ, we know how to do this. Like this is what Jesus is calling us to do, to pray and anoint and heal people. And if we can't do it in this room, we're not ready to do it out there. So we're gonna practice right now And I know it's going to be hard, but Christ is going to do something powerful in us and through us. And so we're going to take up this challenge. All right, let me pray for you as you enter into this time together. Father God, we do not believe that you were crushed and pressed in vain. We believe that you were crushed and pressed so that the oil of your anointing and healing might flow to us and to the whole world. And so, Father God, you have called us to ask for prayer and healing and anointing, and so here we are. We aren't good at it. We are going to fumble through it, but we're trying. We're practicing. And so, Father God, would you hear the prayers of your people? Would you hear the places where we are hurting? And would you hear our call for your presence to come? Would you hear our hunger for your healing? Amen. All right, go ahead.
pray for one another. Um, but I wanted to share what I see. Uh, I grew up with the movie Hook, uh, where Robin Williams plays Peter Pan, and uh, but he's grown up and he's forgotten. He's forgotten what it is, who he is, and who he's called to be. He's forgotten. And so the lost boys are trying to help him remember that he's Peter Pan. There's one of my favorite scenes in that movie where there's the food fight. You remember, if you've seen that movie, there's the food fight. And all of the lost boys are um, throwing this food at each other. But, but Robin Williams' character as adult Peter Pan is looking around and all he sees are this imaginary thing happening. Like, he, he's hungry, but there's no food on the table. He, he sees them playing, but there's, there's nothing to be played with. And then all of a sudden, he takes a spoon, right? And he scoops up the imaginary goop, the imaginary food, and he flings it at the kid across the table. And then something happens where his eyes are opened and the food that he's just flung has actually landed on the kid across the table, right? Like, all of a sudden, he sees what he hasn't been able to see because he participated in what he was refraining from. What I see happening in this moment in these little groups is us realizing I am the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. That like the thing that we knew cognitively to be true, but weren't so sure we're willing to participate in, we're participating in it. Like all of a sudden there was this moment of, oh, Jesus's healing that he brings isn't just something that happens in the past or in the future. It happens right now. It's like all of you, as you dipped your fingers in that olive oil to anoint one another, it was like you were Peter Pan scooping up the imaginary thing and flinging it at one another and all of a sudden realizing, oh my gosh, this is real. This is real. This is real. We're going to sing a song together, and it's called Old for New. And I wanted to read the lyrics, the beginning of the lyrics to you. Because I, I want to make sure you don't miss them as we sing them together. It goes like this. What was torn, you mend again. You redesign the tattered thread by thread. You take the broken and destroyed, and you rebuild. You make whole and joy begins to rise and hope will light the dark our God exchanges old for new dawn has conquered light and death has lost to life and now we we're exchanging old for new there's nothing that your love won't do. There's not a mountain that faith can't move. There's power in the blood, the power of the cross. This is what we're talking about. This is what Christ brings. And this, as the proponents of the good news, as the bringer of the good news, as the good Samaritans, we are called to go forth into all of our spaces to bring this healing.
to bring the good news of Christ. Now let's stand together as we sing that our God changes old 